When talking about former 76ers president Pat Croce, there certainly is a lot to talk about. I'm not even halfway through the list, by the way. You went bungee jumping, you starred your own TV show, you authored multiple books, you were the president of an NBA team, you established and sold a chain of physical therapy centers. You work with celebrity clients as a physical therapist. You became a scratch golfer. You got into woodworking. You built your own log cabin. You had a public battle with cancer. You study mindfulness and meditation. I'm sure you've had many failures. Pat Croce, what did I leave out? Well, just one edit. I am not a scratch golfer. I never broke <laughs> uh, maybe 14 handicap. I don't golf anymore, but that one, I thought, oh, that'd be pretty good. The life and times of a man who once breathed life into a moribund Sixers franchise, Pat Croce. He still feels great, next on Fresh 24. Sixers lock all windows and doors. Pat Croce, when people come to me and they ask me questions about you, I often say that you are an example of a life well lived. And this is just part of it, I'm sure. And correct me if I'm wrong with any of these. You learned Japanese, you flew helicopters, you were a karate champion, you built pirate history museums, you opened bar restaurants in Key West. I'm not even halfway through the list, by the way. You went bungee jumping, you starred your own TV show, you authored multiple books, you were the president of an NBA team, you established and sold a chain of physical therapy centers, you work with celebrity clients as a physical therapist, you became a scratch golfer, you got into woodworking, you built your own log cabin, you had a public battle with cancer, you study mindfulness and meditation, I'm sure you've had many failures. Pat Croce, what did I leave out? Well, just one edit. I am not a scratch golfer. I never broke uh, maybe 14 handicap. I don't golf anymore. But that one, I thought, whoa, that'd be pretty good. Pat, what, what drove you to do all these things? I don't know, Zumi. I really don't know. I think I had this sense of lack. There was always this emotional urge within me of what's next. I was never really satisfied with the present moment. I wanted to invest my best in whatever I was doing, but there was always a sense of something more, something more. And uh, I, I don't know. I enjoyed work. I enjoy life. I'm very curious, always have been. And so I would see someone doing something, whether it was uh, helicoptering or whether it was Bruce Lee and karate, I think I could try that. Or what about that? Or even going after the Sixers. When I first read an article in the Inquirer of how the team was on the down trend, but the NBA was on the uptrend, I'm thinking, what if? Those were two powerful words. What's next is scary. What if is pretty positive. You are now very much into Buddhism, mindfulness, meditation. Tell me how that all came about and what your level of participation is and what your level of learning is. 
And Buddhism is a philosophy, so I am not a Buddhist. I love Sufism, Buddhism, uh, Advaita, uh, so Hinduism, Catholicism, I'm Judaism. I mix them all up because they all have one theme in common. We're all the same. Peace, love, and happiness is our true nature of this self, and we share that self. That's it. It happened at my birthday, uh, November 2nd, the Day of the Dead, uh, on 2014, I turned 60. That had nothing to do with this, but in retrospect, it might have. I was retiring from the hospitality business that I had in Key West and St. Augustine with museums and, as you talked about, bar restaurants, and my son and son-in-law, Michael and Jeff, were all ready to take over. And it was about two, three weeks later, I was doing a book pitch. What's next? It's my third retirement. First was sports medicine industry. Then it's professional sports. Then it's hospitality. And I really thought of retiring. My, my, Diane would always say, what are you chasing? I'm, th- I'm saying, what, the, what are you talking about? What am I chasing? <laughs> Success. I don't know. But never the, nevertheless, Larry Platt and I go pitch a book to his agent, David Black, up in New York on failing your way to success. And I was going to replicate what Napoleon Hill did with Think and Grow Rich and interview, you know, whether it be uh, Michael Jordan or Sarah Blakely or uh, whoever, all these great ones who overcame pitfalls and downfalls and to success. Now, it was pure egoic, pure ego. I just wanted another bestseller. The last one was I Feel Great 20 years earlier or 15 years earlier and be back on the speaker. It was pure ego, not pure ego. Well, David Black kicked our collective ass. He said he's waving our pitch in the air and saying, you've already had a bestseller. This is bullshit. What are you talking about? If you want to do something, then do something, write something transformational like Tuesdays with Maury. Mitch Album is his client and also a friend of mine, and I loved Tuesdays with Maury. And I'm looking at him like, what? Transformational? He goes, let me tell you something. And this really hit home, Zumi. He said, the success, multi, multi-million seller, Oprah makes it a movie, of Tuesdays with Maury was not the wisdom imparted on Tuesdays by Maury, but because of the transformation of Mitch Album, the author, from an arrogant asshole to a loving person. Hmm. I went, whoa. Right there was what the Zen masters call a satori. When your mind goes blank, you go, wow. Oprah calls it an aha moment. Uh, It's a glimpse of our true nature. It's like, whoa. Well, Larry Platt kept pitching. I just went, whoa, let's listen. Being a salesperson, always selling, selling, you know you have to listen to the buyer. And he went on this inspirational rant for a while. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, WTF, transformational. I'm already healthy, happy, and wealthy, so I thought. But it was a good meeting, nevertheless. We leave. And over the next couple of weeks, Larry and I are talking about, you know, what is the narrative? Like, why would anyone want to buy my book? I wasn't resurrected from leprosy or out of jail or amputations in the war. Like what? So I'm giving you some backstory there, Zumi, because I really haven't shared this with anyone. I'm flying to Key West with Diane. It's January 20th, 2015. I've retired January 1st. And uh, I'm reading a magazine and there's this writer, Pico Iyer, 
don't know him. He's a travel writer. But in the article, he has this quote. Most of our life occurs in our head, memory, imagination, speculation, interpretation. So if you want to change your life, you best begin by changing your mind. Boom. Another Satori, another, ah, change your mind. Can you change your mind? Mm. You can change your opinion. I've changed bodies as a physical therapist, athletic trainer, but can you change your mind? So I saw this Pico Iyer had a TED talk. And you know, you're familiar with TED Talks. Of course. So I, I, when I got to Key West, I put on the TED Talk, and there was 18 minutes on stillness. Now, stillness to me meant sitting still, and that didn't interest me at all. But nevertheless, I'm watching it, and I'm thinking, whoa. And it led me to another TED Talk on mindfulness. Zumi, I didn't know what the word meant. Had no idea. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. a guy named Andy Podicombe. He was wonderful. Did a 10-minute TED Talk, juggling. And he is the author, the creator of the meditation app Headspace, which I then mm-hmm. decided to download sure. after watching him. And the third TED Talk that I went to, went to was Happiness by a monk, a Tibetan monk, a French Tibetan monk, Mathieu Ricard. He's the Dalai Lama for the, the, the interpreter for the Dalai Lama, French interpreter. Well, two years later, I have Diane in Bhutan because I want to be with Mathieu Ricard for a month. But nevertheless... So I I start meditating that day for 10 minutes. I couldn't even sit still. But that was the beginning. And from that beginning, over the past eight years, I've been all over the world investigating, exploring what has happened, because I say my mind has cracked, and that you get to realize this true nature of yourself that's not veiled by thoughts and feelings, sensations and perceptions. And so I share that with friends who ask. I don't push anything. I'm not selling anything. Nope. But if you're the Buddhist said something really interesting, Zumi, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Hmm. So you have the option not to mentally suffer. I'm not talking about grief because that's rooted in love when you lose a loved one. However, suffering Anger, anguish, frustration, guilt, blame, shame, resentment, regrets, all that. You don't need any of that. None of it. I don't have any of it. I do not suffer. And if I don't suffer, then there's an opportunity via my experience that you don't have to suffer. And so I still I still love this investigation of the truth, our true nature. So much so, Zumi, that no one knows this. No one. No one except my wife, not even my Sangha members. That, you know, every Sunday I, I host this uh, spiritual Sangha for almost four years now. I'm going to Tibet May 19th for almost a month to trek across Tibet and up Mount Kalash, the, the sacred mountain where it's uh, so it's pretty exciting. Just I'm just going. There's probably be a dozen people there. I don't know anyone. I just going by myself. Like you, I'm in my 60s. I'm about a year or so younger than you. And maybe it has to do with age. But I feel like in our society today, the volume is too loud. There's too much yelling and screaming at each other. There's too much divisiveness. There's little, if any, listening. Do we need more of what it is that you're studying, more mindfulness, more meditation? Would that help? Yes. And that's an absolute yes. Because what we can't instill peace 
between fractions, religions, colors, creeds, until we're at peace. And so once you realize that your essential nature is peace, a sense of contentment, fulfillment, that that which you truly are, that right now, Zumi, that is hearing my words, not Mark Zumov, but the knowing with which you're hearing my words is infinite, means it has no boundaries, it has no colors, it has no objective conditions. It's shared by everyone and it requires nothing. It doesn't lack anything. There is no sense of discontent or disease. Once you realize the peace you are within, then you can share it without. But there's no way you can fake it and call for peace between fractions and factions if you're not at peace yourself, because that will resonate. What resonates out is your true vibrational energy. And when you're at a high vibrational energy of aware presence, like that, right? Like you are right now, that's a Zen finger. <laughs> Just you. Then you, that resonates out with everyone. Like we love talking to Zumi. Zumi interviews were always great because you placed your attention solely focused on your interviewee. Always. Nothing distracted you. So we felt that love, that peace, that energy. And so that you would get things from interviewees that most people wouldn't get. I love going deep with you. Let, let me ask you something. Uh, compare and contrast this with the kid growing up in Lansdowne. I, I seem to remember you saying, uh, and I'll put it gently, that as a kid you were sort of mischievous and nonconforming. Uh, think back 60-some years ago to the kid growing up in Lansdowne and tell me what it was like for you. It was great. It was great. You hung on the corner. You played games in the street. And it was just you had your crowd of guys and kids that you hung out with. And, yeah, you tried to do get over and maybe steal a thing here or there. And, but you know, just I was a paper boy, though, for sixth, seventh and eighth grade. So I worked every day for three years carrying newspapers, the evening bulletin. So I had to work. And then when I got caught doing something mischievous, the old man would beat the snot out of me. When I got in trouble in <laughs> class, the nuns would beat me. And then the nun, my dad would beat me for the nuns beating me. It, it didn't do any good, right? It didn't bring me any more peace. No, I was still going to be enthusiastic, energetic, having fun. And that scheming doesn't need to stop. We can still be at peace on the inside, like the hub of a wheel, but be part of the... Be in this world, but not of this world. So you can have one foot in the hub of the wheel and the other foot running around, dancing, playing, celebrating. So that's life to me is a celebration, a pure celebration. We talked about this off the air, how you are just celebrating this retirement from the Sixers in a most joyful, energetic, still what your skill set is and sharing it. You know what, Sumi, it's a big difference. Desires aren't bad. It's attachment to desires that causes pain and suffering. And when desires come from a sense of lack, I need more. I need more to fulfill this hole that I didn't even know I had. That, that seeking causes suffering. When a desire comes from happiness within, that's a sharing. That desire is a celebration. So there's two desires. Most people are seeking. They're seeking and resisting. They're resisting what is right now, and they're seeking something that is not now, something that they think is better than now. 
you know, that desires and fears. However, once you realize your true nature of peace, love, and happiness that we share, then you start desiring to share that. Come on and open mm-hmm. up other people to this great celebration we call life. In your life, physical therapy was certainly something that helped to be a launching pad for you. You later had an association with the Flyers. Um, Would you say that your ability to somehow connect with them as a physical therapist uh, helped to open a window to many things for you and and eventually help you to become what you became? Zumi, who's the them? The Flyers or Patients? Uh. The Flyers, I would say, because, uh, you know, I just remember you when I was covering all sports in Philly, particularly the Sixers as their halftime host. I remember you uh, having an association with the Flyers, and that's really the first time I became familiar with you. Well, it started in 1980, and uh, it was Paul Holmgren, who uh, was my first client at the time, before I got hired on as their physical conditioning coach in 81 by Pat Quinn, the head coach. But... I Matt DiPaolo, you know, there's a three-word mantra that I've always lived by. Relationships determine results. And I had a relationship with the physical therapist for the Flyers, Matt DiPaolo, because I volunteered at Fitzgerald Mercy Hospital in Darby, Pennsylvania, and he was the physical therapist on staff. I'm away at University of Pittsburgh getting my degree in physical therapy and an under-degree in athletic training, and Matty DiPaolo is the physical therapist. And so when I came out, he knew of my prowess in karate and flexibility. And he asked me to train or teach some of his players, one of which was Paul Holmgren. And Paul then wanted to learn more about karate because he was one of the great fighters for the team at the time. And so I demonstrated some martial arts skills. And so to answer your first question, yes, it was my ability to not only know the body and love the body, but also to know a little bit about the mind. Not what I know now, but motivating the mind. Then it was all about self-help and self-motivation. Now it's more about self-realization. But at the time, I was working the mind-body-spirit triangle, not even knowing I was. I just Mm. believed that everyone had to be positive, whether it was making the injured good or the good feel great. I feel great. Uh, the title of one of your books, but I, I, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to jump too far ahead. The the one thing though that uh, the one theme that I got out of that um, was my, uh, relationships. Uh, the fact that uh, you and Matt DiPaolo had a relationship led to so many other things and other relationships uh, for young people out there uh, who might be trying to catch up with your legacy and find out who you are. Uh, the importance, please stress to them the importance of relationships and what you have found uh, to be so valuable, having good relationships. Let me, lo- let me leave your viewers with a personal experience. Not only the Matty DiPaolo opened the Flyers door, which opened the Sixers door because then they wanted someone to help with uh, Andrew Tony's uh, foot injury and then Sean Bradley's physical conditioning when he was uh, drafted. However, let's go even further. Do you think that the owner of the 76ers, Harold Katz, would have ever had lunch with me if I didn't have a relationship with him as his team's physical therapist? There's no way. No way. And then if I asked him because I heard of his 
discontent with the team. They were losing. They were the worst team in the league in 1995. Me saying, well, sell me 10% of the team. Let me infuse energy and enthusiasm. I'll take the blame. And he's saying, nah, Pat, when I sell it's all or nothing. Yeah, all or nothing. <laughs> I love that. Nevertheless, that was relationships. If I didn't have a relationship with Matty DiPolo and then with Paul Holmgren to get to the Flyers, and then the Flyers led to having a relationship with Harold Katz and his team, and that relationship led to me posing an offer to Harold that obviously he said no several times, but no to me meant no, not yet. <laughs> to me, it was just, okay, a little added persistence, which was started when I was a kid. You know, you just kept going. And if someone didn't give you a good tip when you delivered their newspaper, maybe you do it inside the door or you put it in a wrapper. Some way that you can get them motivated to give you a tip. It's the same. But everyone, relationships open doors. It's up to you to stay in the door because a relationship can only open the door for you. But if you don't invest your very best in the present moment in what you're doing, you know, that resonates as a low vibrational energy and that door will close just as quickly as it opened. So just to speed things up, of course, eventually Harold did sell to Comcast. Comcast Spectacor was formed. Ed Snyder was involved. You had a piece of the team. You became the team president. Your first year, a 22-win season. Now, the good news is with the top pick, you did draft Allen Iverson. But, uh, you know, Johnny Davis, a first-time coach. Uh, Brad Greenberg was a first-time GM. Only 22 wins. What did you learn from that one season? Because you made radical changes after that. I learned no matter how positive your mental attitude is, experience is worth its weight in gold. I did make big mistakes, and that mistake was I hired a rookie general manager who hired a rookie head coach, and I'm a rookie president, minority owner, but I'm a rookie, and I knew nothing about basketball. I knew how to sell basketball, and I knew Philadelphia would would help Late Philadelphia, but I didn't. I, I wasn't a coach or GM. I couldn't evaluate talent. And so after that first year, even though Ed Snyder didn't want me to fire Brad Greenberg, he said, no, let him fire Johnny Davis. I said, nope, I made the mistake. They're gone. And I went after Rick Pitino, Larry Brown, and Phil, ja- uh, Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson had the opportunity to talk to me because we were out of the playoffs. They were still in the playoffs. Obviously, they win it again. And he told me, he said, Pat, I'd be interested only if Michael doesn't come back to play. Now, why wouldn't Michael come back to play? Like, they're paying him 30-some million dollars a year, and they're champions. But nevertheless, it was great speaking with him. And and that's what I learned. I learned that, and you know, another thing I learned, that when you make a mistake, Zumi, You face up, you apologize for it, you take the blame, and you do your best to rectify it. And that's what I had to do. I had to apologize to the fandom of Philadelphia that it was my mistake. I made a mistake. I just want to interject with one memory I had. That season, that 22-win season, I remember you had something in the stands with uh, six or season ticket holders, and you you came out with a goalie mask. I came out Ronnie Hextel's goalie mask. (laughs) Listen, I'm I'm ready to take on your concerns, but no hitting below the belt. 
And one guy, one heckler yells out, why, you hit us below the belt. Zooming, I took off that Ronnie Hextel's hockey mask and I went, okay, here we go. And this is the, I didn't know we had that many season ticket holders, <laughs> but they're, they're packed. And it was a half hour before the game time, before the doors normally opened and I fed them and everything. They didn't care. They wanted mm-hmm. to know why we were losing it. It was just, it was painful, but it was a wonderful experience because they realized that I listened to them, that I really cared about them, that I was just an ambassador for them. Uh, fast forwarding to 2001 was such a magical year. Uh, the fact that the Sixers actually got to the finals essentially with one star, with all due respect to the other players, Dikembe Mutombo, of course, was acquired in midseason, but it was basically Allen Iverson's show. And not only in 2001, Pat, but in, in the years leading up to that, one of the big things that you were able to do was not only bring Larry Brown and Allen Iverson together, but to help them through their issues because they had many of them. Uh, I know you want to be respectful of the meetings that you had in private all those years, but if you can, uh, bring us into one of those meetings or just give us a general sense of what it was like to have to bring those people to get <laughs> those two guys together in one room and, and have them get along. It was, it was uh, for the four years that they were together under my reign, my second through fifth year, it was it was great, obviously, because we're talking about two highly talented individuals who know their game almost better than anyone. And at times they were separated, not by their love of the game or even the love of each other's talent, but by their ego Larry wanted it his way. Alan wanted it his way. And it just took some time. And there was the one time after the Detroit game when I get a call from Larry. He wants Alan traded the next day. And Alan called me, which he rarely ever did. He never rarely complained and said he wanted Larry Brown fired. And I told them both we will meet before practice. At the time, it was at PCOM. Philadelphia College of Medicine was the our practice arena. And there was a conference room with glass. And I was in there with Billy Kingston to the side. Larry Brown came in. Larry Brown was upset. Alan came in, sat next to me, and sat back like this. Wanted no parts of this meeting. Outside, the entire team on the other side of the glass are standing there waiting for, getting ready for practice. But they know all kinds of feces is hitting the fan. And it was, uh, I told him, starting out, that he is not getting fired, the head coach, and you're not getting traded. I need both of you, the team needs both of you to be at your best, to work in harmony for us to win, to proceed on to the playoffs and win the playoffs. That didn't go far. Hmm. It didn't go far. Now... You know, back to that childhood on the corner, I was pretty good at mediating between fights and trouble. Well, here, what I attempted to do was show the similarities between these two individuals. White and black, young and old, bebop, hip-hop, it didn't matter. 
And I told Alan Iverson, I said, Alan, just imagine if you were the head coach and you took your star player off the court and he MF'd you. And he stood down at the end of the bench and he looked all downtrodden and everyone's looking and you diss him like that. You disrespect him like that. And Larry Brown's sitting up straight, nodding. And I said to Larry Brown, I said, Larry, have you ever imagined that when you call him off the court and say, sit down, that it's like the white prison guard saying, sit down and N word. And Larry kind of went, he was shocked. And Alan was shocked. And I said, you two don't realize how similar you both are and the love you have for the game and for each other. And Larry was sitting up straight. Alan, Zumi, went from this to this to stand up, walked around the table and hugged him. Mm. Hugged him. I mean, I was like getting pins and needles and it was, it was a transformation right before us. It was the beginning that was, I think, season four of mine. I think it was the next year is when we get to the we got to the third round, sec, third round, second round that year, finals the following year. But that was it. That was the turning point because after that they never really had when well, during my reign they never really had another true argument where they were, you know, take care of your kid. He would say to me when he would miss practice or something, I would have to suspend him. <laughs> Nevertheless, it, it never happened again. As a matter of fact, the next year, Alan was MVP. Alan even asked me to be this, to wanted to be the assistant captain. It, it, it was just marvelous. It was mm-hmm. truly marvelous. I, was, I felt so good about it. However, Larry wasn't so happy with me. I get a call later that day, and I'm thinking that, you know, this is, you know, hey, Larry, how's everything? He was so mad that I put him on the same stage same level as Alan he would don't you ever do that again I was like shocked like didn't matter to me it didn't matter I what mattered to me was the success of the team so we two were never the him and Alan may have been a little closer but Larry and I were never as close there's so much to talk about with that team and uh, particularly 2001 but just one anecdote I wanted to share with you uh and there was an L.A. Times article that I referenced, Game 3 of the NBA Finals. President Clinton wanted to come in and sit in your suite. <laughs> and you said, no. You said, and here's the quote, I don't care. He never called us when we were losing. In my box, I only want people who support us. It's the president of the United States, Pat. Well, ex-president. He wasn't the acting president. Okay, well, fine. Okay, but you're always known as president until yeah, you're gone. You know what? I, I know he didn't. He just wanted to be seen. He was coming from Wimbledon. And, and so I get a call from the NBA offices, and I said, no. I got these people who've supported the team for five years when we were no good, and now all of a sudden he's going to come in with his secret service, and half my box is going to be, No. These are friends of mine who I grew up with, who've supported me. They could have been bikers, corner hangers. They could have been, it could have been, I didn't care. But there was no way. So funny you say that. What most people don't know is I get a call later from Brian Roberts, who's the chairman of Comcast and the chairman of our majority partner. That He goes, Pat, what? I got to give. 
Clinton, President Clinton, I have my box during the game. I said, he said, they said, you said no. I said, ah, why don't you say no? He said, I can't say no. So, <laughs> it's so funny, Zoomy. Comcast box is one over. There's one between us. Well, you see ex-President Clinton sitting there and his bodyguards around him. And there is Brian Roberts and some of his there. But it was like an empty box because it's all Secret Service. As soon as the dance team came out, you see Clinton reach down for the binoculars and he's looking <laughs> at the dance team. Uh, are you watching much Sixers basketball today? No, no, I, I, I go to bed early. I get up early. I, I mean, I'll watch them now and then, but, you know, if it's a, I went to a Saturday game. I brought two of my grandsons to a Saturday game uh, earlier in the year. But I no, I don't. I don't watch much of it. I I mean, I want them to win, and you know, when the playoffs come, uh, I'll watch as much as I can. But uh, you know, I go to bed early, and I'm up at three thirty four every morning. So, and what do you do at three thirty four o'clock in the morning? I meditate. I journal. I read. I walk the dogs. I work out. Breakfast, and then by eight o'clock, I'm ready for the day. <laughs> mm. Mm. And what time do you go to bed? I'm in bed. I'm asleep by eight. And you said to me before we started recording here that I, I think I asked you, we were talking about Sean Bradley, who you once changed. He had the unfortunate bike accident where uh, now uh, he is left as a quadriplegic. And we were going to I wanted to talk to you about that. And you said, no, not only uh, do you not uh, have you not spoken with Sean lately, but you don't speak with many people. Uh, you, you were always so popular and public and such a people person. And now you're quite the opposite, it seems. Uh, maybe. Yeah. I just enjoy, I enjoy my woodworking, my Chinese calligraphy. I enjoy my dogs. That doesn't mean we don't have people here at our property called Meditation Hill. And I spent the month of February in Key West, which uh, was pretty interesting because that mm -hmm. hasn't changed much since I, I hadn't been down there in a while. However, you know, I keep in touch with friends and if someone needs something, they call. But there's there's no reason for me to reach out. I mean, I got to see Alan when he was retired, when he retired his jersey. I got to see him when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. I know you were there, too. Uh, so but I'm, I really I feel comfortable by myself. I'm not lonely. I might be alone, but I'm not never lonely. So it's it's not something I don't have to be in a crowd in a gang anymore. I don't know what it is, Zumi. It's just this I'm is the way you've evolved, I guess. Yeah. Pat, um, in spite of what it is that we're talking about, you preferring, um, you know, a lot of time, as you put it in your home, what you call Meditation Hill. Uh, you went very public a couple of years ago with uh, a cancer battle. What uh, were the issues and why did you do that? Uh, that's a good question. I thought I had poison ivy, Zumi. I had this rash mm. on my chest. Now, I have you know, a lot of acreage here and I, use, I work the woods. I built three miles of trails on this property. So it's really cool. However, I don't have my shirt off ever on this property, ticks and poison ivy and stickers and invasives. But I had this itch and it wouldn't go away. So I contacted the dermatologist. She gave me some cream prescription. I put it on twice a day for two weeks. I was embarrassed to call her back saying, it's, it's getting worse. It's not getting better. Mm -hmm. 
So she goes, come on in for a biopsy. So I go drive in for a biopsy. And I've had a lot of little squamous cell carcinomas and basal cells. You know, they get cut off all the time. However, she took it. And then usually within a week, you'll get a call, what it is. Maybe you have to get more taken out with a Bose surgery. And uh, she took three weeks. She calls me on a Friday morning. It was around my birthday. And she says, Pat, it was 7 o'clock in the morning. And dermatologist never calls me. Then I said, hey, doc. She goes, i got to let you know you have uh, a diagnosis with your rash. It's a T-cell lymphoma. Hmm. Are you saying I have cancer? She said, yeah. Okay, what do I have to do about it? And then she goes, okay, we got to get you to a, a radio, uh, to a, a oncologist and then maybe, a, you know, scans. And then I said, okay, how do I do that? Where do I go? And so she goes, boom, that was Friday. Monday, I see an oncologist. I get the PET scan, the CAT scan, whatever I needed to do. By Friday, she cuts me 60 stitches on my chest. Once mm-hmm. I heals, I do radiation at Bryn Mawr Radiation uh, radiation therapy for a month and then boom, done. However, mm-hmm. however, Zumi, the second part of your question was like, why go public with it? So in this, my tweets, I send out every day, a little inspirational spiritual tweet about in a subtle way that you don't need to suffer. Maybe how to change your mind, how to recognize that the thoughts in your head aren't you, aren't true, so let them flow through. And and I started a sangha, a spiritual gathering, where I have several hundred people every Sunday from 11 to 1230 via Zoom. And I was Zooming before Zoom. I should have put stock in it, Zoomy. You were Zooming, you were Zooming before Zoom became a household word. I did some was coming on four years, and it's great. I mean, submarine commanders, Wharton professors, lawyers. I mean, people from all walks of life all over the country. And it's great. It's a great community. Not a purely non-denominational. It's all about the oneness, the aware presence. However, I thought I could do more, but I didn't know how to do more. Uh, I didn't feel like that book I said I wanted to write. Nah, that, that, that was ego. Grace caught me. Grace knew how to trick me into looking on the spiritual path. It tickled my ego. And then once I got involved, you realize there is no, the ego can dissolve and ah, you dog you. Grace works in mysterious ways. So it's not a way in which I can convince people that you don't need to suffer. So I figured... I didn't know. And then when I was, my body, not me, my body was diagnosed with cancer. I was aware of the cancer, but didn't affect me on a scale from zero to 10. I didn't go off zero. Not an angst, not a worry. Didn't bother. For me, it was a new adventure. I got to meet all these new people. So I called the American Cancer Society. I figured this was a sign. I could get everyone who has been diagnosed with cancer, who has touched by someone who's touched with cancer, and provide them with a little inspiration, motivation, a little exploration of their true self using cancer as our wedge in. And so I proposed to Paula Green at the time, who was our executive director of Philadelphia, that I would do a gathering. I'd raise money and what could we do for research? And that was the healed health and energy through active living every day. And the research is going on in Atlanta as we speak with 400 
cancer diagnosed clients, a myriad of different diagnoses. And these results will be used. And I helped to raise the two and a half million necessary for mm. it. And it was just but I figured then I would go be public on it. And that's the only time I came out. And you, I know you did an interview with me because I came down and rang the bell a couple of years ago. And it was just a, it was a wonderful experience to go back out and see all these people I hadn't seen in years. But at the same time, ring the bell, literally ring the bell for those who are suffering cancer and those that are the health equity, those who aren't getting the, the medical needs that are required because they don't have the wherewithal and bringing that attention to the forefront. Pat, aside from your spiritual journey in May, what other boxes do you have to check? Oh, I don't have any boxes to check. That's that, even that box is in, a, is in a bucket list. There is no what's next for me. It's what's now. It really is what's now. This, I love serendipity. I love like serendipity to me is like a guy tickling you on the elbow. So, and there's a barometer that we use in the spiritual path that you can tell if they're making any progress, more joy and peace on the inside, more serendipity and equanimity on the outside. Equanimity meaning no real attachments and no pushing away that you're really flowing with the universe. Equanimity. I, I mean, serendipity. I happen to get a message I wrote a reflection that I do for all the Sangha members every Friday, and it was about a Tibetan proverb. Later on that day, I get an email from a Sangha member talking about this Tibetan pilgrimage and the circumambulation around Mount Kailash, this famous sacred mountain. And I kind of laughed about it until I returned to the book I was reading, and it was a fiction book by Brad Thor, and the first paragraph and the page I come to says Himalayas. I thought, ah, let me go back to that email. So to me, it was serendipity saying, you might want to check this out. So it wasn't like I needed this. It wasn't a desire of mine to go to Tibet. Really, I, don't, I didn't want to travel anymore. However, I kind of say, okay, let's go. So to answer your question, I don't have a bucket list. I don't have a what's next. I love what's now, like this presence with you right now. And if all of your listeners, viewers, are realizing that the now is the most important moment of their life, not pulling from the past or projecting to the future, that's called mind, memory and anticipation. The mind comes in. You want to be free of suffering? Be in the now because the mind can't operate in the now. There's no mind right now. There, you have to think about the now. That's the mind coming in one second afterward. But if you're really in the present moment, right there, boom, you're free of suffering. Pat Croce, it was fascinating catching up with you, as we often say after my yoga sessions. Peace, love, joy. Namaste, my friend. Thank you so much. Oh, namaste, Zumi. And you, namaste, just for your viewers that don't know what namaste is, even though that Indians do it all the time, namaste means may the divine in me and the divine in you be one. And that's really beautiful because if you look at everyone as if you were looking at yourself, 
Ram Dass says, look at everyone as God dressed in in drag. (laughs) Then, Mm -hmm. wouldn't it be a more peaceful, happier world like you talked about earlier? I I definitely agree. Peace, brother. Thank you, my friend.